0: Welcome to another show. I'm delighted to have Vishal Kumar here to join us. It's very rare for us to have the opportunity to talk with a very respected financial advisor. I mean, there's all sorts of different questions. You come to my YouTube channel in general to learn a lot about real estate and possible possible opportunities. But what better than to learn from the experts? So we have a few main topics that I wanna cover for this show. The three questions I'm gonna be asking, and feel free to leave it in the comments below. If there's future questions, that you wanna learn more about. But number one, we're gonna talk about the benefits of owning real estate in a trust here in California. There are typical ways of structuring it. Obviously, you can have it as just individual names and then you may see some examples. Some people may have it in a living trust. Um, We're gonna learn a little bit more about that as to why people are doing it and what is the benefit for you to be able to do it. Number two, we're gonna talk about using securities backed lines of credit for remodeling and refinancing. So not just a standard using straight up cash to do remodeling work, like what other possible options there are when it comes to these larger projects. So you're not, um, you're not using the cash that you have on hand. And last but not least, we're going to talk about this, which is a common question for a lot of my listeners, financial planning considerations when buying a primary residence. And when does it make sense to start considering to buy an investment property? So we got a lot to cover today. Michelle, welcome to this show. And, and why don't you give people a background about yourself, how long you've been in the business, what you did before, and, um, and, and just a little bit about the company.
1: Yeah, awesome. Thanks. thanks, Spencer. And thanks for giving me the time to do so. Um, so like you, I'm born and raised here in the, in the Bay Area, in the South Bay. And I have a twin brother who is actually now my business partner in Twin Peaks Wealth Advisors. And you know, we've been in the business now for 12 years. Um, both of us went to UC Berkeley for our undergraduate and then started our careers in San Francisco uh, in financial services immediately after. So we've been th- doing this for 12 years now. Um, and our firm uh, is a comprehensive wealth management firm. So we do everything from flat fee financial planning, basically helping people think through strategic decisions like, should I be renting an apartment or buying a home? Um, should I sell my home to upgrade into another one, or or can I afford to rent my current home out, make it an investment property, property and buy it, buy something bigger? So those would kind of fall into sort of the financial planning uh, world of of our services. We also do investment management. We do estate planning, so wills and trusts. We do. We've partnered with an estate planning firm to generate those documents for clients. And lastly, we can also help with insurance needs, things like life insurance. Um, you know, when when somebody's buying a home and maybe they need maybe they need some insurance to cover the mortgage. Um, But that's kind of a firm overview. Um, uh, What else can I tell you?
0: No, that's perfect. Let's jump right into the questions. So what are the benefits and what are the pros and cons of having a real estate holding in a trust? Like what does the process look like? What are the pros and cons of why people should or shouldn't do it?
1: That's a great question. And so there are many different types of trusts. And so what I'm gonna talk about today is is kind of your standard revocable living trust, which is what the majority of Americans are going to use. Uh, And this this would apply to, you know, your standard family, either somebody, an individual or a husband, wife, um, you know, children, and kind of want everything to go to the kids or grandkids, or, um, you know, kind of what we considered your your kind of your standard family needs. And so the primary benefit to having the real estate in a trust as opposed to owned individually is that upon your passing, it's clearly delineated exactly what your wishes are uh, to happen with the property that you own. So for example, you might want the the a property to go to just one child because, you know, maybe they're living in it or, or, or maybe they need some more assistance than another child. Or, or you might just want everything 50-50 and you want that spelled out uh, in, in writing. Um, and also, you know, let's say, you're planning for the very long term, and you want to plan for, uh, you know, grandchildren potentially inheriting the property if if um, um, if one of the parents, if one of their uh, parents pass away. So there are many reasons uh, to to have the trust in place, but the primary one is to make sure that the home will avoid probate, and um, it outlines exactly what the ownership and the beneficiary percentages are are like. Um, the second main reason is to outline the schedule of inheritance. So if you have minor children who are you who you will be uh, leaving real estate to, maybe they're still living in it with a guardian, then you can put a schedule on their inheritance as to when they receive ownership of the asset. So without this in place, if they are the legal um, legally entitled to the asset, you know they could potentially just sell the home at age 18. Um, and, and you may not, may or may not want them to be able to do that. So you can outline things like that in a trust. Those are the primary two reasons. There are many other reasons, but those are the primary two reasons. So avoid probate and, uh, put a schedule on inheritance, whether it's real estate or, 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 other assets.
0: So for those that are not familiar with probate, um, what is probate number one and number two, from what you've seen from experience right now, how long does that take to get resolved? Cause I mean, if people knew what that process looked like, a lot more people should consider doing a living trust a whole lot earlier. So what is probate for those that are not familiar and how long do you see those situations getting resolved? Even if it's easy, how long does those take to get resolved?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So probate in the state of California can take up to 15 months. And probate is the process by which the court determines uh, where, you know, uh, the dissemination of your assets. So um, who's entitled to what and actually transferring those assets into into those person's name. And so there's a standard, you know, schedule by which assets will flow down to beneficiaries um, if you don't outline that yourself. And so if you were to pass away without a trust in place, you know, your bank account would go into a freeze until that that proper claim is made. And so that process in California, uh, especially during COVID, was taking a little bit longer. Um, But, uh, you know, we say, hey, plan for up to 15 months. It can be as short as, you know, a month or two, but, you know, we say plan for 15 months.
0: Versus if it wasn't a living trust, is that, in a sense, effective immediately? Uh, How does that work?
1: That's correct, yeah. So the trust actually circumvents the court process altogether. So if you have, um, you know, the real estate owned in a trust or you have a brokerage account owned in the name of the trust, rather than having the account go into a freeze upon, you know, the owner's death, uh, it would simply transfer to the next person that is outlined in the trust document. So it avoids the court process altogether. And so it's kind of business as usual continues. And so um, the best thing you could do is after establishing the trust is move the deed to your home into the trust, move your brokerage account and your bank accounts into the trust, you know, provided that you want um, your wishes are to have it flow uh, through the, the wishes that you've outlined in that trust.
0: Got it. And I think the biggest hurdle that people may have is just like you're creating a will, it is talking about, you know, the worst case situation. I mean, you're basically planning for what happens after life, so I think that's the biggest hurdle. But as you can see, for for those that might be inheriting the property, it was a difficult discussion to help upfront. I mean, it's going to save a lot of people a lot of time, and we haven't even talked about any of the money aspect of things. Like if you're going to the probate, there'll be different, I presume, people involved, and there'll different be different costs associated with it. So not just time, there's money. Um, so it's you know I uh, you know I have a lot of people always consider that even if you're, you know, pretty young and relatively healthy, it, it doesn't take long to do. Um, and it will save, you know, your partner or the other side, uh, a lot of time and money um, in the unfortunate event of something like that happening.
1: Yeah, Spencer, you're actually yeah. selling this, uh, this service even better than I am, because in the, Cal- in the state of California, the probate fees on the first million dollars, I believe are uh, up to $45,000 worth of assets, which is um, a lot of money to pay for, you know, your house to go to your children. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, all of that stuff can uh, be avoided with a little bit of planning. Um, I, I did want to uh, highlight one difference between a, a will and a trust. So one of the other benefits of a trust over a will is that a, a trust um, will circumvent the probate process, whereas a will is is still public record. And so if you, if you don't want it to be public record as to what were all your assets and, and who those went to, then a trust better accomplishes that. Um, so there's more there's, there's some privacy benefits that come with a, a trust over a will as well.
0: Got it, no, thank you for uh, sharing the difference. I think most people are f- more familiar with the will, given it is a whole lot less paperwork, I think too, right? Uh, it is a simpler document, let's just say that. Um, but it's not like the living trust is anything too complicated. I mean, maybe complicated if you haven't done it before. But once you review it and do it once, then it's, it's not, it's nothing too crazy.
1: No, it's, I mean, it's really just a pass through entity for a couple, right? So if you have a joint account, you can have a, a, revocable trust with both of you as trustees and beneficiaries, meaning you're both authorized to sign and transact on the account and the money is for both of you guys. Uh, but you get all the legal protections that come with a trust as opposed to owning it outright. Um, basically it lives on after, after you do Um We've talked a lot about about the benefits of the trust, but let's. I just want to highlight a couple of considerations or disadvantages of a trust. Please. So um, you know, like you said, the will is very popular. People know of what that is, and for for somebody who just has maybe one bank account, you know, one brokerage account, uh, uh, one beneficiary, then it's very easy to just put beneficiary designations on your accounts or or write out in your will that you know so and so gets the car, so and so gets the dog. Um, and you don't need to own a trust, but when you have children and grandchildren, you have multiple properties. You might have gifts, outright gifts that you want to make, like you know, upon my passing, fifty thousand goes to this charity, fifty thousand goes to ex nephew. Um, um, you know, all of that is kind of it's just it's just easier to outline uh, in a trust, but uh, it does come with some disadvantages, right? So you don't want to make something overly complex to administer after your passing if it doesn't need to be because there's a cost to administering a trust. And I'll give you an example, you know, our father passed away, my, my, my twin brother and I, our father passed away when, he, when we were 14. And so uh, let's say my mom also was not in the picture and we had this trust overseeing our assets. If he had put, it, you know, um, uh, like an age-based designation on our benefits, so like 30% at age 30, 30% at 35, and, you know, 40% at age 40, there would have to be some somebody overseeing the trust until for that duration. And then that person is entitled to a fee. Right. And so depending on the size of the assets and what's at stake and, and how much control is, is, is required will dictate how complex you want to make the trust. Because if it's, everything is just going to your children and they're, they're already of age and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're reasonable people. You, you, you don't need to make it so complex and you can, save them some, some costs and headache down the line. So that would be the the main consideration is, you know, you don't want to make something overly complex if it doesn't need to be. So we, we say, we call that getting over lawyered. Um, and so that, that's where it, it, you know, you got to get a trusted financial professional
0: to give you, give you uh, perspective. Got it. No, thank you for sharing that. Let's, let's change the mood a little bit for those for our next topic. Right. So using securities-backed lines of credit for remodels and refinancing. Let's maybe break it down. Uh, I've never heard of this from a refinance perspective, but remodeling s- sounds uh, correct. Now, is this the same as like a HELOC or is this completely different?
1: Uh, uh, it would be a good way to understand it. So let's start with a home equity line of credit. So Spencer, let's say you, you you buy a house and it's fully paid off. How much, and you applied for a bank of... Uh, a, a line of credit from a bank, how much would you typically be able to borrow?
0: I mean, if it's fully paid off, I mean, I think, I mean, they've been pretty conservative, but let's say 50%.
1: Okay, great. And so in, in you know, especially here in the Bay Area, you know, real paid off real estate is considered kind of, a, kind of a stable asset at least, right? And so that's why they're able to, to lend you 50% against the value of your paid off asset. With a securities back line of credit, it's tied to the value of whatever securities you have, such as uh, stock in Google or Facebook or whatever it might be. Um, And so there, the borrowing rate is actually going to be uh, less than 50%. It's typically 20 or 30% of the uh, asset value. And so um, the, um, uh, sorry, Spencer, let me just, (laughs) yeah. Okay, Is there when you come in? Can you?
0: Sorry about that. All good. Keep going. So yeah. So back to like securities, uh, back lines of credit. Uh, you're basically using s- stock securities um, to borrow against.
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah. So let's say you had, you know, $100,000 worth of stock in Apple. Right. right. That would probably have a loan to value of approximately 30%. So you could borrow 30 grand against the value of your Apple stock without having to sell it. Got it. So this is great for people, um, especially in the Bay Area with tech stocks that have done well over the last couple of years where they may not want to trigger capital gains. Right. Or they might already be tr- triggering capital gains for the down payment they're making with the home that they're buying with you. And then, then comes the remodel costs and hey, let's not trigger more gains this year. Let, let's wait until 2022 to trigger those gains. This is a source of liquidity for that.
0: Interesting, okay. How, do, how does this instrument work then? Like, do they have to move the money or as long as they show it it's at an account, they have the ability to do it? Like, how does this work from a paperwork perspective to protect whoever is loaning the money? Who is loaning the money?
1: That's great. Yeah, that's a great question. So there's many there's many brokerages that will offer a securities back line of credit. So for example, some examples are E-Trade, Charles Schwab, Goldman Sachs, um, and there, there's going to be more out there. But wherever your shares are held, if, you, if your brokerage does not provide one, um, you can always move your shares to another brokerage that does. Mm-hmm. And you'd simply apply for the loan, just like you would a, a, a home equity line of credit. Now, because they see the shares in your account, they know that it's fully paid off. There's no, you know, mortgage against your your shares, um, and they would they would make the uh, loan available to you, and your shares are collateralized in that loan. So you you can't sell and withdraw the money from that account once you've borrowed without their permission, right? Um, because it's it's collateral. But it's a, it's it, the it's a very straightforward process. Typically the, the loan gets approved within 48 hours because, I mean, the securities are all there and they're paid off in the account. So there's no uh, credit. There's no like,
0: you know, your ability so to make checks it. needed. I mean, it's, it's just, an, I mean, it's just an account and it's somewhat frozen per se. Uh, not frozen. I mean, it requires permission in a sense because there's another person that or another entity that has a stake as to, you know, um, to that, to that fund in a sense.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's only um, frozen to the extent that you're maxing out your borrowing ability. Like, let's say you have a hundred grand worth of credit available and you take a $20,000 loan, you know, you can still sell other shares. You can transact. It's you're well beyond your,
0: your, so. uh, And what, what kind of rates are they charging for these, for these fees of what you have seen? Um, Does it matter of which an Apple versus a Tesla stock? Like, does that matter of the type of stock it's holding or? So that doesn't,
1: yeah, that's a great question. So the, the stock will not affect the rate uh, of the loan, but it will affect how much they can get for the yeah. loan. Right. So a stock like Apple, which is you know a, a blue chip company has right. a loan to value of 30%, but a new com- new IPO company might only have a 10% loan to value.
0: Right. And what, what kind of rates are you seeing of the borrowing costs?
1: Yeah, they they'll typically be as low as 1.75 and as high as 3.2 uh, percent, and uh, it is considered an investment loan. So unlike a mortgage, there is no limit on how much interest you can deduct on a securities back line of credit um, from your taxes, provided that you're itemizing. So wow. you know, right now with the mortgage interest deduction phased out at I think it's 830,000 of mortgage. And in California where people are buying two, three, four million dollar homes, sure, you know, they're they're taking their mortgages well above that amount. Right. So oh. go ahead.
0: Yeah. So no, that that that's great. That's very interesting. I mean, I don't think a lot, I mean, I certainly haven't, and I think a lot of people should be familiar with this. How does the refinancing side play into this though? Um, how does that work?
1: That's a great question. It, it's not something that you want to do with, you know, like let's say you have a two million dollar mortgage right. and you have eight hundred and thirty thousand of that is deductible, th- that interest. You don't necessarily want to refinance all of the rest of it with a securities back line of credit because uh, it is riskier than a mortgage because let's say the value of your stock fell. Right. And it and could not- It's
0: almost like a margin call potentially, right? Like if the value falls, they're like, hey, look, we need to get some of our money back. Is that what happens? Exactly. Example? Yeah, so they, they might force a sale of your asset or ask you to deposit
1: more cash or securities.
0: Right.
1: So how we, how we typically tell clients to use it is, hey, there, there's there's some amount of liquidity where you know that you can make make good on that payment so maybe we refinance a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand of your million dollar loan um, the interest rates are very comparable to what you're paying already on your mortgage but you're gonna get a full tax deduction uh, Wow and so they're basically just putting money back in their pocket they're changing who they're paying the interest to but they're um, you know
0: they're getting money back in their pocket that's really big I, I have not heard of this approach um, I, I I always knew you can borrow, like I, I knew of the aspect, like if you had a lot of, like there's a lot of, um, like wealth management companies, right? So you have a lot of opportunities to borrow against that, but I have, I never put it together of one for this remodeling of how low it is uh, without having to sell stock, but also from the refinance, I've never heard of that. So that's a uh, really, really cool and really interesting to see.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's gaining in popularity, uh, just because right now rates are low, um, you know, people are people are buying real estate as you know across the country. So it's just another source of liquidity, um, especially here in the Bay Area where people don't want to sell their stocks and the gains right. have been good. The outlook for the companies is good. So, if nothing else, it's a way for you to defer capital gains for a couple of years. Um, and so, so it's also the,
0: in a sense, getting leverage. I mean, it's it's not I mean, a very expensive route to get leverage, right? Um, that's the way I also look at it. Are the rates though, when it's securities backed, are they fixed, or, or are they, uh, are they like a, um, just, just like, like a, a rate mortgage type? Like, are they fixed, or how does that work? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it'll be variable, just like a home equity line of credit, where if if interest rates go up, the rate the, the rates will go up, and if they go down,
0: rates okay, will go down. yeah, got it. Okay. Let's wrap it up with our last topic of the week, financial planning considerations of buying a primary residence slash investment property. Let's break it down between the two. We have a lot of individuals that are listening. They they are a lot of renters here. They pay a lot of money in rent. Um, I know you pay a lot of money in rent in general for those that are renting. And I know you also have a lot of income. So the question is for those, you know, we all hear like prices are X amount and And a lot of people are worried. A lot of people have clearly bought and sold. So it's a mixed bag and it depends on where you're at mentally. But from a financial advisor perspective, when you have a conversation with individuals, let's say they work at big tech, they, I mean, it's as stable of a job as there can be, quite frankly, like what is that discussion that you have, whether it's right or wrong for them to buy a primary residence first and how do they understand their, like what they should buy up to. So for example, uh, mortgages, uh, from loans from lenders are as low as 40, 43% debt to income. There are certain banks. though that can go loan up to 60% debt to income. So generally most people are not actually max maximizing the loans from what they can actually get. And it's, it is the individual's choice, but quite frankly, you can, most people can get quite a bit of loan right at this moment. But as a financial advisor, what are the conversations and considerations that you have as to whether it's right or wrong to buy a primary home?
1: Great question. And so I always try to take it back to what's the why for you deciding to buy a primary home? Is is the reason that you're buying it, you know, hey, it's going to be a good investment. There's going to be some tax benefits. Or are you buying it for more qualitative reasons like, I need a sense of permanence for my family. I have children, you know, we can't, we don't want to get kicked out if the owner wants to move back in or, or you know, move his kids back in, et cetera. Um, but from a financial planning standpoint, what we tell clients who've never bought real estate before is, you know, real estate is, is one of those things where cash flow is king. So if you've been renting your whole life and you're considering a real estate purchase, we say the first thing you need to understand is that it is a commitment. Right. you are owning an asset, there's going to be property taxes involved, there's going to be maintenance involved, there's going to be insurance, right? It's on you versus making that phone call to, to somebody to, to, to get things fixed. And so uh, helping them understand that commitment upfront and the benefits um, of the transaction. So as a financial advisor, I'm a huge fan of people buying investment property right? Because you're getting leverage on an asset that hopefully is, is going to be appreciate, appreciating. And you're also collecting the rental income from that asset. When you buy your primary residence, you're still getting the price upside in your property, but you're not getting the rental income. But you are getting a bunch of tax benefits, um, such as, you know, not having to pay taxes on the first half a million dollars worth of profits on your house if you're a married couple, um, you know, when you, when you actually go to sell it. So there are some benefits there on buying real estate um, as opposed to you know stocks, where where you're going to be paying taxes on the first five hundred thousand dollars worth of gains. Right. Um, so you know cash flow considerations is is the number one thing, but then also remember there's going to be a bunch of things that change for you as it relates to taxes. Right. So for most people, when they buy their first home, uh, their effective tax rate actually goes down, and this is making a bunch of assumptions, but assuming that. You now have a mortgage interest deduction mm-hmm. that could lower your tax rate. Um, you now have property taxes which are deductible, so that that should lower your effective tax rate. Um, if you have a PMI, that's deductible if your income is less than 50000 or 100000 for married couples. If you pay points to a lender for a new loan or refinancing, then what you pay in points is deductible, so that can lower your taxes. And right now, especially in California, with all of the uh, the solar and you know energy related product, uh projects, you might be receiving credits in, ad- in addition to deductions. So there's a bunch of benefits um, that could lower your 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 tax rate. The biggest consideration or risk is you know is is that cash flow risk, right? You got to make sure that you can afford that mortgage and 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 keep that thing around because there will be ups and downs in the market. Um, and so, yeah, that's, those are kind of the main things we, we tell people to think about.
0: Do you have a, do you have a general guidance or is it truly case by case of a range of how much reserves people should have uh, as a rainy day fund? Um, is it three months? Is it nine months? Is there a general range that people should, you know, if they want to be aggressive, it could be three months. If they want to be ultra conservative it's nine months, like what, is there any thoughts of that rainy day fund conversation? Yeah, well, we tell people if you're renting and you know, you're know you gainfully
1: employed, then we say that, hey, you, know, you should have an emergency fund of you know about six to nine months. Now, if you own real estate, right, because we know that real estate is not one of those assets you want to fire sell in a downturn, right. uh, we would say that, hey, it's good to have 12 to 18 months worth of an emergency fund, whether that's cash or some sort of short-term bond instruments or CDs, something safe and that you can get to in a relatively short amount of time. Um, and especially if you have children involved then you know, 12 to 18 months is good because you don't have to just, you know, you don't have to move around and, uh, make them face a bunch of
0: changes. Um, so got it. And my last question, as we wrap up the call would be, I've had conversations where there's plenty of people that earn good money here and they're renting. And so their question is, do they just, because they, Value is a subjective thing, but many of them say, oh, I can buy X properties in in Y city. And so many elect to go and buy an investment property first. You're correct. The cash flow is better. But the thing that was part of the equation that you didn't uh, factor as well is you're still paying rent here. So what are the general pros and cons, or not just pros and cons, but thoughts of those that... Should they buy a primary property here first to get those benefits, tax deductions, stop paying rent and then buy investment property? Or are there like, are there, is it a good approach for them to just keep renting here and buy investment property, not, and, and maybe not even be able to save up to buy a home here in general? Like what are the thoughts of, of, of that, that when they're still renting here?
1: Yeah, there's a few considerations because one is the cost of renting in the Bay Area is so high, right? So if we were looking at anywhere else in the country, right, where you have a normal rent, in general, it's best to, if you're, if you're optimizing for net worth specifically, just I want to have the most money possible. It's to rent a place that you rent the place that you live in, but buy investment property. But the reason that a lot of people say, hey, buy the home that you live in, is because not everybody has the ability to buy their home and pay rent and also invest outside of their home, whether it's an investment property or the market or stocks, whatever it is. Um, Not everybody has the ability to to do both. So if you're not going to be investing elsewhere, then absolutely buy your investment, buy your primary residence, right? Because at least you have equity building up in there. Maybe you live off of that in retirement, either you sell it or reverse, reverse mortgage or something. But, you know, if you're, if you have the wherewithal to make, to rent and buy investment property, and you're optimizing for just, I want the most money possible, that would be the formula to go to. Um, But here in the Bay Area where like people can spend, you know, 4,000, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 a month in rent, um, if they're, if they have a family, um, that's where the calculus becomes more nuanced, right? Where we actually have to run the numbers and say, well, this is, this, you know, it's not like spending $2,000 a month somewhere else in the country. So,
0: mm-hmm. Actually, I have one last question, which is, why do you think from your own clients or just the, in general, we talked about briefly, so there, I think Trump a couple of years back really affected the coast of the, the SALT tax, right? Of really capping it uh, in terms of how much can be deducted, but- so it had a little bit of a blip at that time of more expensive properties. But if you look at the market today in general, those properties are doing fine, right? Um, 2 million plus, 3 million plus, 4 million plus, they're still doing fine. They're selling very quickly, there's plenty of buyers. So w- is there something about their mentality of those that can afford that bracket? Because they don't get as much of the tax benefits actually as you're if you're a sub-million, because then you get a majority of it, right? Um, because it's that, that numbers to that amount. And then there's a cap and then that, that gap is just kind of on their own. When you have conversations with these individuals, like, what do you think it is of them still buying the two million, three million? They just not care about it. At the end of the day, we're all on the even playing field. So we're all in the same boat. Like what's their mindset? Is it not even like tax savings anymore? Cause I find it really interesting. It, it was a, a trigger in the beginning, like many things. And now it's like, it is what it is.
1: That's a great question, and, and we're seeing that happen like, all across the country, and the main reason is you know, when you have the individual who can afford a $3, $4, or 5000000 million home versus um, you know, maybe somebody who's getting their, their first home and everything all is being liquidated for that down payment, you know, they're looking for that 500 k to $1 million home, it's very different because the guy that's buying that $5 million home has a bunch of cash, and he knows that that cash is not doing anything for him he's been holding that cash or he or she have been holding that cash for the last couple of years um, or as they've been looking and getting out bid on homes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for them, it's like, Hey, you know, cash is trash. I'm, I'm looking to move my money into an asset because interest rates are low. Mm-hmm. So even if I spend like 50 grand more and keep driving the price of real estate higher, you know, it's better for me to get in, get into an asset that I think is going to appreciate over the next seven, 10, 20, 30 years. Um, than it is to hold cash. Whereas on that lower end, people are more price sensitive because it's like, hey, these are my last dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas typically the people looking at that four to $5 million home, maybe there's something else they can pull from, either it's family assets, a bigger bonus coming in, maybe stock they can borrow against or sell, um, inheritance, trust funds, whatever it might be. So I think that's the biggest thing is that, and the people that have been doing well uh, across the country, doesn't matter what industry, um, you know there are a lot of people who did very well, uh, especially through the pandemic, and so, you know, we were at peak economy before COVID, right? The economy was firing on all cylinders, and then there's a as a good number of people who who did even better through that. So those people are all still competing for those the high end homes, and and they're not so sensitive to, to price, right? They have only more money than than pre COVID, so.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting to see. And, you know, that's I think what what people have to also remember, like there are always going to be changes on whether it's political or from the government side. So there's always usually it's like some short term blip as to, oh, it's going to stall for a bit. But then if you if you for most people listening, it's a good exercise to do because history does repeat itself. There's always been these things that have affected the housing market in one way or another at one time because of some events. And then fast forward a few years, it's, it's just a new normal and people just keep chugging along. Like just, just count how many times, look how many news articles individuals may have read of, was it, uh, I mean, it could have been first, it was what statewide rent control. That's one. Um, That's the most recent one that technically, then you have state and local taxes. I'm sure there'll be, Discussions about capital gains tax changing, right? I mean, it's it's at the end of the day, it's uh, it will be an initial blip, but then over a couple of years, whether people forget it or it's just a new normal, it's it's they just keep doing what it was before. Nothing has changed. It's kind of interesting to see, though.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting time for our country because you know, with interest rates so low uh, on the ten-year treasury, and, and the government just printed a bunch of money all investors, institutions, you know, people like you, we're all looking, thinking, out, well, if cash is worth zero for the next 10 years, what assets am I, am I betting on? Am I speculating on? And so real estate is a tangible one. And so I don't think that trend of real estate tracking upwards is is going to change in the short term, at least, because people are still in that speculation phase, right? Until all of, all of the cash hits the markets. And so I think we'll, it'll be good for stocks and real estate and everything, and then we'll see Right. When the dust settles, which industries actually have the revenues to support these valuations. Right. So,
0: yeah, uh, I mean, one, one big move for those that are familiar, like BlackRock is back buying a ton of single family residential properties. Again, for those that tracked it, right, BlackRock was one of the big hedge fund players and big firms that bought a lot um, when everything turned to dust. They bought a lot and then they sold a lot in the, fall, the subsequent years. For prices to be where they're at and for now them to re-enter back in the market is an interesting bet. I mean, they clearly have done their analysis. At the end of the day, they have more money than ever before. The question is, how did they allocate that money? And now they're allocating buying neighborhoods at once. So oh. it's, it's really fascinating to see. I mean, it's fascinating.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I wasn't aware. So I know BlackRock is, I think it's the world's largest asset manager. Right. Blackstone is the, you know, the top tier real estate uh, company here in the US. But um, I wasn't aware that BlackRock is also doing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're both like, yeah, they both have acquired companies in real estate. And yeah, it's been, a, it's really, really interesting to see them, they make the moves. Um, now, whether they're right or wrong, well, time will tell. But the fact that they made a move is is one sign. So uh, cool. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights. This is why I wanted to get a trusted financial advisor here on this show. And for anyone that's listening, please, if there's specific questions, uh, of course, leave it in the comments below. We'll do this show regularly, so we'll have other topics. Whether there's things that are pressing that come on the news, uh, or just things in general we may not have covered, please leave it in the comments. I'll be sure to write them down, or we'll cover it next time. But at the same time, Vishal is always readily available, right? Everybody. Has a different situation, and that's the thing, right? I mean, you'll you can take whatever you learn here as general insights, but then everybody should have your own private consultation to determine what is the right strategy for you. Um, could be on the risk tolerance, could be on what assets you already have, and Vishal will be the perfect person to be able to go through those options. And then if it works, great, just keep working, you know, on a regular plan um, to stay along with your goals, but. At the very least, I think um, people should have a, a general consultation to understand what options they have. So Vishal, what are, what are the best ways of people getting in touch with you? Is it email? Is it phone call? Is it going through your website? I know you have a lot of helpful content on your website. How should people get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, either
1: way, you can email me at Vishal at TwinPeaksWealthAdvisors.com or Twin P as in Peter, dot com. Um, also, all of the information on our services is on our website. We have videos explaining the different services, as well as exactly what you get in terms of number of meetings, what deliverables, you know, what benefits you're actually taking from each different service. All of that is listed on the website, in, uh, in addition to links to schedule uh, a call with us for any particular service. Um, but I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on this video, Spencer. So. Um, Thanks a lot, and um, happy to be in touch with anybody who,
0: who wants a consultation. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I hope you guys enjoyed this latest episode, and I'll see you at the next one. Bye now. Thanks. Bye.